We are in week five here of our series, and we've been looking at some of the more epic moments that have taken place in our nation's history, dangerous trends which have developed over the course of time, trends which, as we are finding out, they are sure, absolutely positively sure to bring deadly consequences upon this nation. The things that this nation has chosen to embrace, make no mistake, these are the very things that are going to seal its death. What is about to come upon this nation is frightening. This nation has never experienced the things it is about to be uh, experienced here very shortly in the, in the soon future, uh, since its very inception, since its founding. Well, today we're going to continue to peel back another layer in our history and look at a particular trend. It's a trend that society, unfortunately, has grabbed onto with both hands. And what am I referring to? Women's liberation. Now, obviously, this can be something that can be quite controversial. You will find pastors, teachers, preachers, rabbis avoiding this very topic with fear that they could wake up next week and and three-fourths of their congregation is gone. This is a very sensitive topic. And considering the firestorm that I didn't intend to create last week, I thought, well, this is just perfect. This is a great follow-up to that. However, you know, in light of dealing with abortion last week and the right, the right of a mother to choose have that choice, that right to kill or to allow her child to live, you know, I felt compelled. I have to address this trend as well and show you the impact this trend has had on society, how this trend has impacted the family, how this trend has declared war against the Bible. Now, women's liberation, you know, this trend can be tracked all the way back to at least the mid-1800s. You think that's quite, a, that's quite a while, right? It started with these two well-known women, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Now, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the one sitting down here, she is an icon in the women's liberation movement. She is actually considered the pioneer, the founder of this movement in our nation. All right? And now, what I want to do is, before we really get started here, before we break into this topic, I want to give you a little background on their working relationship. It's going to help give you a little perspective. And I I took this from America's Library. And listen to this commentary. In 1851, Stanton started working with Susan B. Anthony, a well-known abolitionist. The two women made a great team. Anthony managed the business affairs of the women's rights movement, while Stanton did most of the writing. Together, they edited and published a women's newspaper, The Revolution, from 1868 to 1870. And in 1869, Anthony and Stanton formed the National Women's Suffrage Association. They traveled all over the country and abroad, promoting women's rights. Anna Howard Shaw, another suffragist, wrote a description of the relationship between Stanton and Anthony in the story of a pioneer. And this is very important. You pay close attention to what she's about to say. She, meaning Miss Anthony, often said that Mrs. Stanton was the brains of the new association, while she herself was merely its hands and feet. This gives you 
just a glimpse, if you will, a little background on their working relationship. And what I want you to focus in on is Elizabeth Cady Stanton was the brains. And, and the ideology that came out, the, the ideology that was perpetrated for this, what would be known as women's emancipation, women's liberation, it came from her mind. And this is going to play a very important role as we continue. Now, these two prominent women, Susan B. Anthony and, and Mrs. Katie Stanton, they were actually responsible for what we call today is the 19th Amendment. That 19th Amendment uh, effectively gave women the right to vote in this nation. They proposed that amendment in 1878, but what we discover is that uh, Congress never submitted it to the states for ratification until much later, until 1919. Let me just put a picture of the amendment up here for you. This is the picture of the actual amendment that was submitted. And you'll notice that it says joint resolution. I'll just show you what this amendment states. Very simple, straight to the heart. It, here, it, here it is. Proposing an amendment to the Constitution, extending the right of suffrage to women, which is to say to give them the right to vote. All right? And we find in the very next year, in 1920, the amendment itself, it was ratified. And in this country, something amazing happened. Women now had the right to vote. This is an epic moment in history. Now, I want to be very clear before we go any further. There are a couple of things I want to say. I need to preface this entire series with the following statements. Number one, I am not proposing that allowing women the right to vote is the problem with America. Okay? I am not proposing that. That is not what I'm saying. Actually, history would tell you differently. You go back in history and you see the time that women were given the right to vote in 1920, and you move along. Well, honestly, all the things that the effects that we're feeling today of the women's rights movement, they were absent. And they had the right to vote. So I want to be very clear on something. Given women the right to vote, I am not saying, I want to go on record, that that is the problem. Or that is a negative thing. All right? The reality is, is that some of the things that the movement, and I emphasize some, some of the things that the women's liberation movement has stood for are positive in nature. And my goodness, I want to call good, good, and evil, evil. Okay? I have this ability, praise the Lord, through Scripture. So I'm not going to call because a, an organization that ultimately is evil, some of the things that they do that are good, I'm not going to call that evil. I'm going to call what they do good, that's good, and what they do is evil, evil. I hope you understand that. Let me give you a couple examples of some of the things that, that were positive in nature. At least you, you may contend with these, that's fine. But one of the things that they've been a proponent of is that, okay, if a man has a job, he's been doing the job, that corporation lets them go, a woman comes in and replaces and does the job just as well, if not better, well... Shouldn't she get the same pay? My answer is, of course. She's doing the same work. The same amount of work's getting done. I think that's a positive thing. I don't see that as a negative. You will find nowhere how that has negatively affected the moral depravity that we're experiencing today. Another, another thing that they have done that is very good is they've brought awareness to domestic abuse. Women getting battered by ruthless, violent husbands. 
that are failing as husbands, bringing awareness to this. You know, we should not accept that type of behavior by society. The men of this nation should not accept that by other men. We should be holding each other accountable, right? Amen? So, you know, looking at that and bringing awareness on multiple levels to that, these, all these disgraceful acts, I think it's a positive thing to expose them. All right? It, 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 these things don't have an effect on the moral fabric of society. However, let me say this. Unfortunately, the things that I just mentioned to you are not the entire genetic makeup of women's liberation movement. All right? If what the movement stood for was simply confined to these elements, I wouldn't be addressing it today. But unfortunately, they're not. There's more to the story. And let me explain. I want to begin today by giving you a little background on this pioneer of the women's liberation movement, the founder, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And perhaps this will give you a little insight into the reality of the movement, the trajectory of where this movement was headed. When thinking of liberating women, you have to understand, Mrs. Katie Stanton, her interpretation of what that actually looked like, that stretched way beyond giving women the right to vote. Actually, we find her influence in the ideology she propagated directly affected the home. It was something, her ideology directly affected marriage, a woman's role in marriage. She went out, make no mistake, to redefine what marriage looks like. And believe me, what she defined, what she thought marriage should look like was a stark contrast to what was acceptable in society at the time, what was acceptable by the Bible. Let me give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. When Elizabeth Cady, not yet Stanton, this was her maiden name, Cady, when she was about to be married, it's actually recorded that she had a very special request by the minister performing the ceremony. And that request is, <clears throat> excuse me, that request was that the minister should not go through the part where it says, I promise to obey. And so, you know, the parts, and there's different variations of how ministers work the ceremony. I promise to love, cherish, obey. You, you hear these things. She actually told him, you have to take that out. I'm not going to do that. And she actually offers commentary for us. And she's quoted as saying the following in regard to that action. Listen to what she says. I obstinately refused to obey one with whom I supposed I was entering into an equal relation. You see, notice that key word, equal? That would stand to, we see this today. Even today, we are finding this exact same statement being made. I obstinately refuse to obey. This gives you some insight into the ideology of where this movement is coming from and the impact that it would actually have on society today as we know it. A woman entering into marriage, refusing to obey her husband, understand, biblically speaking, 100% it is rebellion. If this is how you want to enter into marriage, according to the Bible, the woman is in complete rebellion. First and foremost, she's in rebellion against God, not the husband. First and foremost, it's rebellion against God. And then it is rebellion against her husband. It's a total, utter failure. You are establishing your marriage based upon rebellion. 
It's scary stuff, you guys. And, you know, propagating this type of ideology, injecting this into a society, force-feeding this type of behavior, you have to understand it has consequences. Deadly consequences. Almost every single aspect to the Bible's design of marriage, you need to understand the founder of this movement tore apart. She shredded it. Why did she shred it? Why did she tear it apart? Because the Bible, understand, is in direct opposition to the women's liberation movement. It is in direct opposition to that movement. Which is why we find Mrs. Katie Stanton making statements like the following. She said, we found nothing grand in the history of the Jews, nor in the morals indicated in the Pentateuch, which is to say Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible, Greek way to say it. I know of no other books that so fully teach the subjection and degradation of women. These are the words of the pioneer of the women's rights movement. This is the type of ideology you're going to find in the camp. And this is where our problem begins. It's this type of ideology that has contributed to the soon coming judgment that is going to be wrought upon this nation. You know, on the surface, the movement may appear to be just. It may appear to be all about fair treatment, a correct philosophy. But in all reality, this is an ideology that is deadly poison. It is deadly poison being injected into the veins of this nation. Now, because of the Bible's great influence in this country, and the fact that it stood in opposition to the movement, the ideologies of the movement, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, she was forced to take a page out of Thomas Jefferson's book. This is very interesting. What do I mean? That, well, okay, if you don't like some of the things that the Bible has to say, you just take them out. If you don't like some of the things that the Bible has to say, you just create your own Bible. Thomas Jefferson had the Jefferson Bible. Elizabeth Cady Stanton had the woman's Bible. All right? And this, this allowed her a great liberty, or you could say liberation, a freedom to express her own commentary, her own interpretation on what the Bible should say. I mean, really, and what it, what it means. All in an attempt to promote her ideas of what a life of a woman should look like, how a woman should approach marriage. Let me give you this following quote I found very interesting. She made this. She says, We have made a fetish of the Bible long enough. The time has come to read it as we do all other books, accepting the good and rejecting the evil it teaches. Can you imagine? I mean, it sounds, it sounds frightening. It, 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 this is just exactly what Thomas Jefferson and all the deists did to the Bible. The things they don't like in the Bible, they take out whether you call it dung or whether you call it evil. She's, doing, she's following the same pattern of destruction. However, in Elizabeth Cady's mind, when she's referring to those parts that are evil, what do you suppose she's referring to? She's referring to those parts where the woman is commanded to submit to the man. These are the parts. Let me give you some biblical examples of what rocked her boat. Genesis 3.16, to the woman... God said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. 
See, the Bible teaches from the very get-go the husband's to have authority over his wife. This is how God orchestrated it. He's the architect of marriage. This is how he orchestrated it. Numbers chapter 5, we find the exact same type of terminology, that the woman is under her husband's authority. Now, I want to take this a step further. I want to take you to Numbers chapter 30, and I want to show you the type of authority that a husband has. And look at what it says. In Numbers 30, verse 6, these are the things that Elizabeth Cady Stanton would call evil. If indeed she takes a husband while bound by her vows or by a rash utterance from her lips by which she bound herself and her husband hears it and makes no response to her on the day that he hears, then her vows shall stand and her agreements by which she bound herself shall stand. Going on to verse 8. But if her husband overrules her on the day that he hears it, he shall make void her vow which she took and what she uttered with her lips, by which she bound herself, and the Lord will release her. Now, I just want to stop right here. I want you to understand what's going on here. The woman is praying to God. She is praying to the Lord. She is praying something of some kind, of whether it's a vow or something similar. She is vowing to the Lord, I am going to do this if you do this. This is a typical style of a vow. And what Scripture says If the husband hears her doing this and praying to the Lord and vowing to the Lord, he has the right, if what he hears he doesn't like, to come in and overrule it and say, that vow will not stand, you're not doing it. Now, some of your women are going, you got to be kidding me. I am praying to the Lord. Who are you? You have no business. I'm talking to the man. You're secondary. It's me and God right now. Basically, butt out. You know, this, is, this can be the philosophy that how dare this guy come in and interrupt my relationship with the Lord. See, and this is how when you get a feminist reading scripture, this is what they're going to take away. They see this as total oppression. But let's continue in the passage because I'm going to show you ladies something beautiful. As we continue, we read, And 30.13, every vow and every binding oath to afflict her soul, her husband may confirm it, or her husband may make it void. Now, if her husband makes no response whatsoever to her from day to day, then he confirms all her vows or all the agreements that bind her. He confirms them because he made no response to her on the day that he heard them. But if he does make them void after he has heard them, listen to this, then he shall bear her guilt. Does this sound familiar? Do we know anyone who is a husband who bore the guilt of his bride? Yeshua. He bore our guilt. This is an amazing statement. In other words, what the passage is really saying, understand it in its context, if a husband overhears his wife speaking to the Lord, bowing something he knows is too dangerous for her, and he's worried about her well-being, He's worried about her, the hand of God coming upon her. He will interject. And then he will protect his wife. Because that's what it's about. That's what the authority of the husband's all about. It is about protecting. It is about pursuing. It is about providing. These are the responsibilities of a husband. 
And these things are twisted and perverted by the world. Even at times misunderstood in the church. Torah does not teach the degradation of women. The husband is there to protect her. To be her protector. Listen to Paul. He lays this out beautifully. He says in Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as also Mashiach is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Mashiach, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. In other words, this is amazing. Marriage is to be expressed and understood through the relationship of the church and the Messiah. Do you want to have a successful marriage? Do you want to understand your responsibility, your role? You need to look at the relationship between the church and the Messiah. That is the prototype. That teaches you. And it should mirror your marriage. Whether you're a husband or whether you're a wife. Now let's continue. We go in verse 25. But first he says, wives, submit to your husbands. He doesn't just drop the microphone and walk away. I'm out of here. That's all that needs to happen here. No, he goes on and says, husbands, the responsibility upon the husbands, love your wives, just as Mashiach also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Interesting, what's he mention here that the Mashiach does for his bride? He came to give her life. He came to protect her. Husbands are to do the exact same thing. That's our calling, to protect our wives. That he might present her, verse 27, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. It is for her well-being. And so when a husband has authority over his wife, it is to be for her best interest, for her well-being. You have to understand this, women. When you understand the submission to your husband, understand that principle above all. It is for your well-being. God knows best. And he goes on in verse 28, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. This is what the Torah is teaching. This is what the Bible teaches. It is not an advocate of husbands being ruthless dictators. You understand? That's not a husband who understands his position. A husband who fears God and knows his position understands he has a responsibility. He's been put in in a great He's been put in a position of great responsibility. Only a weak man, I want you to remember this, only a weak man, a spineless man, dictates his household. A strong man, a man who fears God, he leads it. There is a difference. There's a significant difference. So despite what Elizabeth Cady Stanton believes, the Torah does not teach the degradation of women. Merely teaches the plan of God. Something that is to mirror the beautiful relationship of the church and the Mashiach. Now, some of you women might be thinking right now, well, Daniel, you don't know my situation. 
all of that beautiful stuff you talked about, husbands being responsible, loving their wives as, as Mashiach loves the church. Yeah, that's not my husband. You're not talking to me. This is referring to someone else. And already you're entering down the wrong path because that already tells me that, well, because of that, I'm going to act differently. And so rather than me going further, I'll just let Peter deal with this. Better him than me. 1 Peter 3.1, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, you just stop right there. doesn't matter what your husbands are doing. Even if they're not obeying the word, even if they're not fulfilling that responsibility that God has given them, and it is a great one, if they are not loving you the way Mashiach loved the church, you have an obligation to your Messiah, the Messiah Yeshua, to serve him. All right? So even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. Through your righteous behavior, that light that you're going to bear, Yeshua, living water coming out of you, coming out of your actions, coming out of your mouth, that is to transform your husband's actions. It is powerful. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or uh, putting on fine apparel, verse 4. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And I will just add this, it's very precious to me. A gentle and quiet spirit, my wife has that. It's precious. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are. Listen to this. If you do good and are not afraid with any terror. I have talked to several women about problems that they're having at home and problems that they have with their husbands. And the number one reason, Peter hits on it, this is, this is mind-blowing. The number one reason they refuse to submit to their husbands, I'm telling you, it is fear. They are terrified, Peter talks about it, and are not afraid with any terror. Women, do not be afraid to submit even when your husband is making bad decisions. Trust in the Lord. Last night, my daughter was actually quoting me scripture. It was pretty awesome. And she said, Daddy, Daddy, Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. See, you're trying to figure this situation out. He's not doing this. And you're hardening your heart. And so, you know, off with his head. I'm going to react. I'm tired of it. He's a Neanderthal. Making stupid decisions constantly. Treating me like garbage. I've had it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, acknowledge Yeshua, the promises, and He will direct your paths. He is watching. Do you understand, women, when you suffer, and you do, and the pain and the sorrow you experience, Yeshua sees it. He sees all of it. It's concepts like these that are rejected by the women's rights movement. I do not want you guys to underestimate the power, the threat of the feminist movement, the, the threat that it poses on the well-being of our nation, on the well-being of marriage. 
the basis of this very movement has raised up to be in a direct opposition to the Bible, to the church. Listen to what Katie Stanton is uh, identified as, quote, listener, listen to this quote. This is amazing. The Bible and the church have been the greatest stumbling block in the way of women's emancipation. Do you think about that for a second? The Bible and the church, the greatest stumbling block. What does this tell you about the movement? It tells you that even in its earliest stages of development, the women's right movement declared war on the Bible. It had to. It declared war on the church. They were standing in the way. And what's way more frightening than this? This terrifies me. Just looking at this statement, what does it tell you? For women's liberation to be fully accepted in society, what must happen? Remove the church, discredit the Bible. And look around you today, because it has been been embraced in this society with both arms, open arms. What does that tell you about the church? It has fallen. What does that tell you about the Bible? It's been discredited. We merely go and pick the things, as Thomas Jefferson said, the diamonds out of the dunghills. This is what's happening today. Another quote. Come, come, my conservative friend. Wipe the dew off your spectacles and see the world is moving. <laughs> this is amazing. This is the same type of ideology that's being peddled today. In other words, a modern-day interpretation, wake up, you Neanderthal cavemen. We're progressing. We're moving. Open your eyes. This is progress. This is progress. I want to show you one more statement made by her. I saved this one for last because if I was to pick any of the statements to truly, for you to understand this movement and to understand where it's coming from, this is the statement that sums it up. Self-development is a higher duty than self-sacrifice. Sums it all up. This is the ideology that is being peddled to the women across this nation, married or single. This is the perversity that is being propagated. Self-development is a higher calling than self-sacrifice. The Bible, in every way, teaches the exact opposite. Philippians 2, 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Let nothing be done. Or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Messiah Yeshua. This is the mind of Messiah Yeshua. Women, you must have this mind. You need the mind of the Messiah Yeshua. Self-development does not trump self-sacrifice. Yeshua himself, read John chapter 13. Here you have the king of kings coming, laying aside his glory, coming in flesh. And did he come to be served? He served. He served his own disciples. He's greater than they are. And he washed their feet. Why? To be an example how we are supposed to respond, how we're supposed to act. This is the light we're supposed to bear. Men and women sacrificing, not seeking their own. James 3.16, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. 
And so when I read statements like self-development is a higher calling than self-sacrifice, according to Scripture, it tells me every evil thing is in that camp. Confusion is in that camp. These are, you know, self-seeking, self-development. It's the antithesis to biblical truth, to what we've been called to, both men and women, through faith in the Messiah Yeshua. I want to move forward in time. We find that after women received the right to vote, as I mentioned before, you know, the reality is, is from 1920 up to the late 50s, the mid-50s, the women's movement stalled out. It really did. Nothing really happened. It, it, it was almost that it died. There's a lot of commentary you could get. I'll spare you the commentary, but by the feminist movement themselves, saying this was a dead period. Uh, the ideologies and the, and the core principles, they had not swept this nation as we have experienced today. Let me give you a fragment of evidence to show you that society... Going into the early 60s, we were still trying to hang on. Yes, everything was crumbling around us because you had abortion happening and all these things. All these things, you had the hippie movement ready to start. All these things, the society is crumbling. But let me show you a court case that took place, and I took this off of Chicago Kent College of Law. It's Hoyt, Hoyt versus Florida. And this is what it says, because woman is still regarded as the center of home and family life. The U.S. Supreme Court upheld Florida law, allowing women to be called for jury service less frequently than men. Now, I love to go back and look at the various court cases that have taken place in our nation because it tells us so much. It tells us where we were. It tells us where we're going. These are good things, right? And this tells me, even at this time, there was still a semblance of common sense, understanding that the women were the anchor of the house. They were the very anchor. However, while this may appear to be good news, we find things were at this time radically, radically changing. It was around this time that the women's rights movement would literally experience an explosive growth under the leadership of a woman known as Betty Friedan. And Betty Friedan was considered the very one who was responsible for the second revolution of the women's rights movement. And in 1963, we find Betty Friedan, she, she released a book called The Feminine Mystique. In other words, The Feminine Mystique, it was a title she applied to housewives, to mothers that actually enjoyed being housewives and mothers. She called that aspect The Feminine Mystique. And unfortunately, as you might have already assumed, this book was not encouraging women to love their husbands more. It was not encouraging for them to submit to their husbands, to rear their children according to the Bible. None of that will you find in this book. But what you will find is that over and over again, this book did one thing, and it's amazing. It bred discontentment among the women. That's what it did. Let me give you a few examples of what this book had to say. Women, as well as men, can only find their identity in work that uses their full capacities. A woman cannot find her identity in the dull routine of housework. You see, it's, from, from Satan's perspective, he is sowing seeds of brilliant destruction. Sowing seeds of discontentment. 
telling these women there's no possible way you could be fulfilled in doing the dull, mundane things that you do around your house. It's pathetic. You women are you're not, you're, you're, you're totally underappreciated. You're not reaching your potential. You see what she's sowing here. It is so deceptive. This is a statement meant to induce discontentment. When I read the Bible, it sounds so different than when, when I read the feminine mystique. In Titus 2.1, we read, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience, the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, verse 4, that they admonish their young women to love their husbands, to love their children, totally different framework, to be discreet, chaste, Homemakers, oikuras, oikuras, literally means just that. It means homemaker, keeper of the home. This is what we're to be encouraging the women in the church to do. Good, obedient to their own husbands. Why? Why are we encouraging all of these things? That the word of God may not be blasphemed. In other words, to veer off of these things, the word of God is blasphemed because that is not the plan of God. The feminist movement does not have the plan of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14, Therefore I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house. Give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some have already turned aside after Satan. So this mundane housework, as Fridan would present it, is not presented as mundane or senseless in the Bible. According to the Bible, this task is an honorable one. It is a noble one, one to be fulfilled so that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And that changes the whole perspective of housework for a woman. The fact that the carpet is getting clean is irrelevant. It's the honor of obedience That's the greater task, that she's fulfilling that, that she's rearing her children, that she's supporting her husband. It is noble, and that noble cause has been destroyed in this country. It is disgusting. Let me give you some more insight to where this feminine mystique, which sold over 3 million copies, has gone throughout the land. Let me give you some more insight. Chosen motherhood is the real liberation The choice to have a child makes the whole experience of motherhood different. Well, I agree with that statement. The choice to be generative in other ways can at last be made. In other words, now we can be productive in other ways. And is being made by many women now without guilt. Now that choice is being made without guilt. I tremble at this. At the effects that this cause has had on our society. Let me continue. Each suburban wife struggles with it alone. As she made the beds, shopped for groceries, matched slipcover material, ate peanut butter sandwiches with her children, chauffeured Cub Scouts and brownies, lay beside her husband at night, she was afraid to ask even of herself the silent question, is this all? Breeding discontentment. I hope you can see it over and over and over again. This is a psychological perverse ploy. You see, if you're involved in the Bible at all, 
you're reading and you're praying. These things are overt. You can see them. She goes on. Over and over again, stories in women's magazines insist that women can know fulfillment only at the moment of giving birth to a child. They deny the years when she can no longer look forward to giving birth, even if she repeats the act over and over again. In the feminine mystique, there is no other way for a woman to dream of creation or of the future. There is no other way she can even dream about herself except as her children's mother and her husband's wife. Get your mind wrapped around that for a second. She just destroyed the noble act of motherhood, destroyed the noble act of being a godly wife, supporting her husband, totally destroyed it with this statement, breeding again more and more discontentment. I'm going to share with you one more. Women who adjust as housewives who grow up wanting to be just a housewife, are in as much danger as the millions who walked to their own death in the concentration camps. They ate suffering a slow death of mind and spirit. So now, apparently, according to Betty Friedan, when a woman walks honorably before God, she's going to liken that to the Jews being slaughtered and killed in the concentration camps, as though it is a mindless, worthless, mundane task the feminist movement is blasphemy against God and you cannot convince me otherwise breeding discontentment as though honorable housewives and mothers are in some sort of prison cell held captive only to rot with no hope whatsoever right the only cure is to break out of that prison cell let go of your motherhood let go of being a wife A good wife to your husband. Obviously, we're seeing, apparently, according to this book, self-development is the higher calling than self-sacrifice. You have to understand that this movement set out to destroy families. It set out to destroy families of this nation all under the guise of freeing the lie, of freeing the women as mothers and wives. This ideology has had a dramatic effect on our nation. It has had a dramatic effect on our families, the relationships therein. And women, listen to me very closely. The enemy sees you as the way into the family. They see, he sees you as the way into to take out your husband. You're the primary target. Make no mistake. Any question to this fact, go back to the Garden of Eden. Because how did Satan get to Adam? He was through Eve. And what did he ask? What did he, what did he get Eve? How did he hook Eve? I'm going to tell you. He sowed discontentment. Think about it. You go back to the garden and, and Satan presents himself. Has God really said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Eve's response is, well, we may eat of all the trees. Except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We can, God has said we shall not eat from that tree, nor even touch it. What's his response? You will not surely die. And then what does he say? God knows in the day that you eat of it, you'll be like him. Do you catch that? He knows in the day that you eat that tree, well, you'll be just like him. He doesn't want that for you because he knows what you're going to gain. 
Satan seduced Eve into believing she was missing out on something spectacular. That she was not reaching her full potential. If she eats from that tree, she can reach her full potential. If you just look at what happened in the Garden of Eden, you're going to see this is exactly what Satan has done to this nation through the feminist movement. This is the whole pitch of women's rights. The same pitch that happened in the garden. You're underappreciated. You're not reaching your potential. There's more. Get out. It's the exact same thing. Women, you need to be on guard. Because you better believe he's going to come after you. I've seen it over and over again. Men falling. Satan using women to do it. Over and over again. Adam and Eve were the first ones. How did Solomon fall? Through women. The Moabite women caused Israel to sin over and over. Satan's, one of his favorite ploys is to utilize women for his perverse tactics. Don't fall into those tactics. Be smart. Be aware that he is doing this. You have no idea. This is one thing that I want to share with you women. You have no idea how much power and influence you hold. Your, your, the, the role you play in society, in marriage, as being a mother, it is an extremely important role in the plan of God. Extremely. And we need you to hold the line. We've got to have you hold the line because this nation is totally taken over by complete darkness. There's very little light left. The women of this nation, what do they have to look at as a good example? I want to end today by taking you to one of the oldest stories that we have regarding women's liberation. Thousands of years ago, this happened. And I thought this was perfect timing since the the feast, the festival of Purim, is upon us. I want to take you to the book of Esther. And understand something about Esther, the book itself. This book, it is a powerful resource of teaching. A powerful resource for spiritual understanding. Esther 1.9, we read, Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to the king Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, uh, Bizda, Harbona, Bigtha, Abigtha, uh, Zethar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. To bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, brought by his eunuchs. Therefore the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, For this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice. And verse 14. Those closest to him, uh, being uh, Karzhana and uh, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, uh, Meres, uh, Mersena, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. And verse 15 we read, What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law? 
because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. Now, what you need to understand here is this story was not recorded to be a mere story to share so that we could peer back in history and go, that's interesting, that happened. The Lord is teaching us a spiritual concept here, a critical concept. Here you have the Queen Vashti. She rebelled against her husband. She refused to submit. He said, come hither. She refused to do it. She wasn't going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I mean, it's, it's the, essentially, it's the same spirit that we see alive today. It's the same spirit that was produced out of the feminine mystique. It's the spirit of Vashti. It's the spirit of Jezebel, of rebellion. Now, this is what's amazing. Listen to these words. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law because she did not obey the king, uh, the command of the king Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs? And Mimukin answered before the king and princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. This is an amazing insight. So when a woman rebels against her husband, refuses her husband... It's not just rebellion against him. It's rebellion against the entire nation. You're going to understand why as we continue. Verse 17, For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will uh, despise their husbands in their eyes. And when they report, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. What do they recognize? The wise men in the kingdom go, If this continues to happen, if we allow this to happen, it will infect the entire kingdom. Well, look around you. It has affected the entire kingdom of the United States. It was allowed to go forth. It was grabbed with open arms. And we continue in verse 18. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Medo will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. In other words, guess what's going to happen? What is going to be the result of the rebellion of the queen? All the women in the nation are going to be rebelling against their husband. There will be contempt and wrath. And and going on to verse 19. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. And as we know, that's where Esther enters into the story. Vashti rebelled, Esther came. She obeyed. She was chosen. She had a humble heart. And we continue in verse 20. When the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king, and the princes and the king did according to the word of Mamukin. In other words, we need to set the precedence. It's not a coincidence. Make no mistake. The precedence that was set here, it's set forth in Torah. It's set forth in the entire Bible. This precedence that they're laying out here, that all wives are to honor their husbands, that's the very teaching in the Bible. Oh, by the way, that used to be the teaching which was proclaimed throughout this land. But as Elizabeth Cady Stan said, 
you got to take out the Bible and you got to take out the church. Get them out of the way so a women's emancipation can run forth. This is amazing. And it's in the Bible. It's warning us. It already warned this nation. The people of this nation had the warning and they refused it. Moving on to verse 22. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. And let me reiterate, master does not mean dictator. A husband should be a servant. A husband should go out and protect his wife, to serve his wife. And just a word of caution, husbands, if you do not fulfill it, if you are not walking and loving your wife as the Messiah loved the church, you're in trouble. Don't think it will go unseen and don't think you're going to throw around all this dictatorial power, forcing your wife to submit ruthlessly for the sake of your position alone. You ought to read the story of Nabal and Abigail. Abigail was a woman, God-fearing woman. Nabal was a scoundrel. And you know what God did? He, he killed him. He wiped him out. And he gave Abigail to David. So that ought to put a little bit of fear into the husbands. You know, it is a joint partnership. And if we're failing, we're going to be held accountable. On the flip side is, is looking at this uh, women's liberation, women... Do not allow Satan into your head to play around in your head, to teach you, to prevent you from submitting to your husband with godly fear. Do not be, as Peter says, do not be terrified in any way. Do not have that fear because he's trying to destroy your family. You want the blessings of God to come into the house? We've got to be godly. We've got to be in fear. We've got to be serving Yeshua. And our marriages should be the living example of what the world should be emulating. Not us emulating the world. Amen? 